we are captivated by stories, some of us more than others. And from our earliest days, we listen to stories that are just stories, and yet they're stories that teach us about life and love and living well. It makes me think of a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who famously said, fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Thus, fairy tales tell children that dragons can be defeated. Ah, the truths we learn from the stories we're told. Take Cinderella, for instance. She lives a sorry life, taken advantage of by a family that doesn't care about her. But everything changes and is transformed when she finds herself pursued and deeply loved. Snow White is hunted by family that seeks her ill. What is it about family? And she's rescued from a curse that she's been put under when she's loved back to life. The story flips with the much-loved story of Beauty and the Beast. This time, it's Belle who interacts with this deeply unlovely man suffering from a curse of his own making. And in the end, she loves him back to his true self. Now that's a great story because all of us, in all the messiness of our lives, we long for love to bring us back to our truest selves. We could go on with the stories, but we grow up and we put away our picture books and we quit reading fairy tales. And still, we continue to be captured by love stories. Take Shakespeare's tragic love story, Romeo and Juliet which we still tell all these years later. Or remember that great story by O. Henry called The Gift of the Magi? It's the story about two young people who are deeply in love with each other, a young couple who are also profoundly poor. It's Christmas time and they want to give each other gifts. And so she makes the ultimate sacrifice and she cuts her long, glorious hair off and sells it so that she can buy a fob for her husband's treasured pocket watch. He sells his treasured pocket watch and buys the most beautiful comb for his wife's long, glorious hair. And it's this tragic story of love and loss, and yet the story captures our hearts because it pictures this profound love that's willing to make sacrifice for the good of the other. And it stops us in our tracks, and we are touched by that. And we say, that's what love looks like. That's what I would love to have in my life. And then we're reminded that the large story of scripture is also a love story full of advances and rejections, sorrow and joy, and it too captivates our hearts. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones describes the large story of scripture in the Jesus Storybook Bible when she says, the Bible is a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one he loves. Oh, I love that description. 
So today, we're going to follow one last metaphor for the church in our summer of reimagining who we could be as the collected followers of Jesus. And that is the metaphor of the church as a bride. And we're going to tell, let the beauty of brides and how being loved changes us inform our thinking. We'll talk about chosenness and fidelity, and we'll ask ourselves, how does this influence how we will live together and live out into our world in this coming year? But first, let's pray. God of all love, we are here today to listen to you. We come as your people longing to hear your voice. We take the posture of the beloved listening for the voice of the lover. May the words we hear from you change our hearts a bit more and propel us in the directions you want us to go as your people in this time and this place. Amen. When I started thinking about our topic for today, I began with the process of thinking about some of the marriages the marriage stories in scripture that told us something about God and his relationship to his people. Stories like Ruth and Boaz, who becomes her kinsman redeemer. And then Hosea and his unfortunately named wife, Gomer. That one really caught my attention. It's a story you may or may not be familiar with. God tasks Hosea with marrying an unfaithful woman and then living with her in fidelity, even as she, time and time again, breaks the covenant of their relationship and goes whoring after other men. The book of Hosea recounts this story, and each time Hosea's wife reaches out to her, when she's out to him, when she's at the end of her rope, he goes and finds her and rescues her out of love, certainly not because she's deserving. But Hosea's rescue would only last for a while, and then pretty soon she'd be off again in unfaithful living. God asked Hosea to live this unhappy story because it's an act of picturing of God's relationship with his people. In this story, God is the jilted lover, the husband who's left time and time again by an unfaithful spouse. And the role of the unfaithful spouse is held by his people. In the Old Testament, that's the nation of Israel. In the New Testament and into our day, that position is held by us, the church. The prophet Ezekiel, who wrote in the same time frame as Hosea, pictured the same thing in chapter 16 of Ezekiel. Let me read it to you from the message. This is what it says. I, God, came by again and saw you, saw that you were ready for love and a lover, and I took care of you, dressed you, and protected you. I promised you my love and entered the covenant of marriage with you. I, God, the master, gave my word you became mine. I gave you a good bath, washing, you, washing off all that old blood, and anointed you with aromatic oils. 
I dressed you in a colorful gown and put leather sandals on your feet. I gave you linen blouses and a fashionable wardrobe of expensive clothes. I adorned you with jewelry. You were provided with everything precious and beautiful, with exquisite clothes and elegant food garnished with honey and oil. You were absolutely stunning, a legendary beauty brought to perfection by my adornments. But your beauty went to your head, and you became a common whore. Harsh words. God is the husband, loving and caring tenderly and completely for his people, and his people, as the bride, who simply could not remain faithful. Well, that's kind of depressing, isn't it? If that was true in the Old Testament, is it possible that because we live in a different time as followers of Jesus, our story might be different? What do you think? Before we answer that question, let's look at the New Testament. Let's look at the New Testament and see what it has to say about the term bride of Christ. The words and concept are quite familiar to us, so it might surprise you to know that they don't actually show up in scripture in the way you thought. It doesn't often, it doesn't refer to the church as the bride of Christ in those exact terms. We understand the concept of bride of Christ rather by inference. So when we're talking about this metaphor, we often turn to Revelation chapter 21. So I want to read that for you so that you can see what it says. Revelation 21, verses 2 to 5. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice thunder from the throne, Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They're his people. He's their God, and he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be gone for good. Tears gone, crying gone, pain gone, all the first order things gone. And the enthroned continued, look, I am making everything new. A beautiful passage, a hopeful passage, but the bride being referred to here is actually the new Jerusalem, the place where God dwells with his people. If we go back to the Gospels, we find another passage that is instructive. In Mark chapter 2, he records an instance where Jesus is asked why his disciples don't fast, while John's disciples and even the Pharisees do. That's a good question, right? And Jesus answers this way. Can the friend of the bridegroom fast as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the day will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then they will fast. Well, if Jesus is the bridegroom, then it stands to reason that he must have a bride. And for the last 2,000 plus years, theologians and followers of Jesus have held that the church, us, we, are the bride that goes along with Christ the bridegroom. And Paul strengthens that connection 
with that particular metaphor in his second letter to the Corinthian church. The church we know was Paul's most difficult church. And here's what he told them in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 to 3. Will you put up with a little foolish aside from me, please, just for a moment? The thing that has me so upset is that I care about you so much. This is the passion of God burning inside of me. I promised your hand in marriage to Christ, presented you as a pure virgin to her husband. And now I'm afraid that exactly as the snake seduced Eve with his smooth tongue, you are being lured away from the simple purity of your love for Christ. There it is. The analogy of a bridegroom and his bride with the church being the bride. So we're going to stick with that analogy this morning as we continue to imagine what a faithful community of Jesus followers might look like in the coming days. Like a bride. And as I was thinking about brides, it reminded me about having had the pleasure of seeing Jenna in her wedding dress recently, together with her groom, Bennett, dressed up in his finery, finally getting to celebrate their marriage with friends and family after their actual wedding a year ago during the pandemic when they could only have 10 people in the room. And as I looked at Jenna, seriously, she was glowing. She was so beautiful and she looked so very happy. And Bennett also struck a fine pose, but Jenna, the bride, she was lovely. And it got me thinking about how love makes things particularly beautiful. And as we follow this analogy, applying it to us, the church, people chosen and loved by God, we anticipate that his love will make, it will be making us beautiful. And not because of anything that we could do of ourselves, but because of our relationship with the lover who draws what is good out of us. Like a bride, we are beautiful because we are loved. Do you think that's true? Sometimes I think we struggle to believe that we as a church are just loved because sometimes we have this nagging suspicion that we're not good enough, deserving enough, maybe just a bit too fallen, as it were. How could the bridegroom love us, we wonder. But maybe if we cleaned ourselves up a bit more, worked a little bit harder, did a little bit better. Well, if you stick with the analogy of the bridegroom and his love for his bride for even a moment, you know how ridiculous that line of thinking is. A bridegroom, well, in a healthy marriage anyways, adores his bride. He hasn't just merely professed his love in words, but he's shown it through his actions. He's wooed his bride. He bought her a ring. He's been part of the many decisions that will go into the wedding event and and setting up a new life together. That's what a groom, a lover, does. And we know this from our own human examples and experiences that have helped us understand the larger metaphor of Jesus as our ultimate lover 
and I mean lover with a capital L. Jesus has professed his love for us, and he did it with very concrete actions. He came to earth. He took on our form. And as Paul said in Romans 5, he showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He's loved us with a sacrificial love. A lover of that magnitude is not dangling our brokenness over our heads. If we felt unloved or undeserving, it's because we've misunderstood. Misunderstood how much God loves us no matter what. And that's the love God has for us, his church. We were chatting about this topic at staff this week. And Caleb pointed out that when you are loved by someone, your life comes to be shaped around them. You come to care about what they care about. You set your agenda willingly aside to accommodate theirs. And you don't do these things because you have to, but because that's what happens when you love and are loved by someone. That's such a great point. And when you're loved, it also makes space for your mistakes, which, by the way, you will make. And there's the possibility of forgiveness and restoration. So who has changed your life by love? A spouse? Children? A dear friend? God? Love comes at us from so many different angles, and if we are attentive, it draws the best out of us and makes us more truly who we were meant to be. I read a book this week by Henry Noun called The Life of the Beloved, and in it he talks about how being the beloved of God, chosen by him, given our worth and identity from him, letting him define our characteristics, that changes everything. That truth gives us kind of like a Teflon coating, as it were, that helps us resist the toxic messages we get from our culture. Messages that say we are not enough, that we're not successful enough, or good enough, or beautiful enough, or we lack talent or skills that help us get ahead. Or maybe even the toxic messages we've inadvertently gotten from other places. Messages that intimate that God only loves us if we're good enough, if we manage to keep the rules and believe all the right things well enough. If we, um, and it flips the message of scripture, making the story about us and what we can do. And frankly, that's exhausting because we're never good enough or right enough about enough things. But when our deepest identity comes from a love relationship with a good God, those unhelpful and even toxic messages, well, they just don't stick the same. Those messages that diminish us, make us less, they dim in contrast to God's message of good news. We are chosen and loved. We are his bride. And just like a beautiful bride dressed in her gown on her wedding day, the church is portrayed in the Bible as cleaned up and gloriously pure because of the work of Christ. Okay, full disclosure. The church is made up of very ordinary and sinful people. 
That's us, so no one is surprised by that. But being chosen by God, paid for with his very life, well, that exerts incredibly powerful restorative force on us. It takes us from who we are, fallen, sinful, unlovely, and loves us into something so much better. If we go back to the earlier fairy tale, we, that one we began with, we are the unlovely person who has been entrapped by a curse of our own making, and the curse has been broken by someone who sacrificially loved us and made us his own. And he is loving us into our best selves, making us beautiful. Isn't that what we long for? Part of the biblical story is also, includes, also includes the fact that from time to time, God's people forget their true identity and they lose their way. In Ezekiel's day, that looked like God's people abandoning him, either through boredom or thinking they didn't need him. And they made heartbreakingly bad decisions. They did things that God would have never asked them to do. And the people of God lost the big story that they were part of, forgot who they were as dearly loved people of God. And they went down some really dark paths. And yet, what God promised them right up front at the beginning was that he would be faithful to them, no matter what. It's what Hosea's story pictured, right? That their actions would not be the determining factor of God's love. And even if they fell, time and time again, he would go looking for them and bring them back home. It's the same kind of story the prodigal son pictures for us, that even when we make the worst choices, when we implode our lives, turn our backs on everything that we know to be good and true, God still stands with arms open, ready to take us back when we return, ready to forgive us, ready to love us. The story isn't really about us. It's about a God who is deeply faithful. And that is very good news. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 says, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, like gems glistening, the church as something beautiful. Caleb reminded us last week that we live both in the now and the not yet. In the now, we are the beloved of God, participating in bringing about his kingdom here and now, even as we wait for the not yet, which scripture pictures for us as a wedding feast, a huge celebration, a party with Jesus and his church as the centerpiece. That is our happily ever after. And that's how every good story ends, doesn't it? <laughs>